Welcome to the summer edition of ZapCast. Greetings and welcome back to ZapCast. Uh, thank you, Mason, for the introduction to maybe the one and only summer episode. Uh, I'm Chad, that's Patrick, and yeah, we're back. It's been a crazy couple of months, so we apologize for the uh, the lack of content. But um, we're in a legislative special session right now here in Texas, and so we've got quite a bit to talk about from a property tax standpoint. But before we get to that, Patrick, how you been? I'm good, man. I'm good. It's been a lot of summering, a lot of summering. I'm ready for the kids to go back to school. They still got a month of the house. So yeah, but no, it's good. Things are, uh, we're finally rolling into July and things are going to slow down a little bit for us. Uh, I feel like I've been all over the place for the past month, the month of June. I know you've traveled a little bit as well. Uh, and so you still have a little bit of traveling in your future, but uh, I'm slowing. I'm going to be going up to uh, the Alaska area where it is much cooler than it is here in, uh, sweltering North Texas. Yeah. I am blessed to go out and visit, uh, uh, visit Michael in California here, uh, in a couple of days. And so that will cool me down just a little bit. Their average temperature. We were joking around the other day. Um, I think, you know, it was like, Hey, we've got a meeting. I, I need you guys to have a meeting. And it was, it was as if we both were ready to jump on that meeting to get out of Texas. It was currently 106 degrees in Texas and like a, a, a high of like 67 there in California. So uh, it's, it's been a hot one so far, but it kind of cooled down this week. And I think it's supposed to get hot again next week, but yeah. Um, some good things. Speaking of heat, the legislative session part due by the wow. way. Wow. Yeah. Wait, that was that a segue, my friend. That was yeah, a segue. Was a segue. So Texas is in its second special session. Uh, the first special session, um, the house came back and in, in the, in the special session is all about property tax, right? I mean, pretty much the only thing on the call of any substance is, is property tax. Um, right now there is a belief that we're going to have another special session called ironically for, um, for school vouchers, uh, mm-hmm. they uh, for education savings accounts is the the new term being used in Texas. There, we think they're going to call a special session in the fall. Um, I was actually told by a lobbyist, uh, really funny uh, comment was they don't want to bring back that issue in the summer because all the teachers are out of school and they don't want people <laughs> to come to Austin and and protest. So great governance there from uh, from our legislature, and uh, they're going to bring that back in the fall. Uh, but right now we have property tax reform because we have this huge surplus uh, in the state of Texas. We had a surplus that was uh, almost 15%, I think somewhere around 15% of our total uh, biennial budget, right? Yeah, probably a little bit less because that number was from a couple of years ago. That, so that budget I, number. I want to give a little background on the fight, right? Um, and kind of discuss exactly why there are differences between a Republican elected or Republican majority Senate and Republican majority House and a Republican governor in a state of Texas. How have we not been able to come to a conclusion on what to do uh, with lowering property taxes in, in Texas uh, when everybody's in the same party? So that's much that's easier. Where we're at. It's much easier to spend a little bit of money or to find cuts when you need them than it is to spend a lot of money. Yeah, I think it's a really complicated issue, and and because we're talking about a lot of money, and we're talking not only are we talking about a lot of money, but what what we don't hear folks talk about is whatever reform they do in this uh, biennium, they also have to be able to pay for in future bienniums, right? 
So property tax reform is not just a one-time expense. It's it's an ongoing expense that you know grows exponentially over time, right? So, um, you know, that's a that's a major concern of of some of the players that are that are in the room and and having those conversations. But the the differences. So let's just really quick talk about the House's plan versus uh, the Senate's plan. Original. Can I ask you a question real quick? Yep. They've already used some of the surplus to pay for the the previous reform, correct? That's correct. I, I don't know okay. the exact number, it was like but I think three it was or like, four billion dollars. It was like, it was, yeah, I think it may yeah. have been like four or five, but yeah, somewhere okay. around there. Uh, they've had to use some of the surplus to pay for what they had done before, which uh, we actually did a podcast a while ago and we talked about this and it, it wasn't really uh, specific on that subject, but I did discuss that a couple of legislators said, well, legislators, when that happened, said, well, we're going to do this, but it feels like we're kind of kicking a can down the road. We're saving money today, but we're going to have this cost in the future and we have no idea how we're going to pay for that. Well, luckily, we had this huge surplus that ended up paying that four or five billion dollars that we needed uh, to pay for that. Are we going to have that in two years? Um, who knows, right? Um, you know, just just like some of our development patterns in Texas, uh, we get a little bit uh, Ponzi schemish uh, in our legislative appropriations. We have a balanced budget. Look, it's significantly better than the the federal government, right? But why are you laughing at me? I'm just thinking about the uh, the situation that they're going to be in in the future if they make a bunch of changes that they can't afford and then have to raise taxes. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and and that's you know kind of kind of where we're at. So the 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 current model that they put in place in the last legislative session was is they basically said that any growth over two and a half percent in values in a school district is going to compress the tax rate. And that compression and the cost of that is going to be taken up by the state's general fund budget, right? So if my house value grows by 5%, or better yet, if all values within a school, a single school district grow by 5%, 2.5% of that is going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to pay for, right? It's going to go to the school district. The other 2.5% of that is going to be backstopped by the state and the tax rate is going to be compressed by that amount, right? And so that's what they did. Obviously, with eight, nine, ten percent appraisal gross within that period of time, that backstop had to get pretty large to state funds, and so that's where that extra four or five billion dollars came from. So that's kind of what we did before. Now let's talk about what they're trying to do now. Um, two different plans. The original plan prior to special session in the House was we are going to um, basically do the same thing we're doing now. We're going to continue the compression. We're going to add to that compression. We're going to accelerate that compression to get that tax rate down even more. Uh, and we're going to put a 5% appraisal cap, uh, which I actually think was a legislative. It, it wasn't like a Prop 13 California idea for them politically. I think it was a budget writing uh, scheme, right? Because if I have a 5% appraisal cap, then I can control the compression and the cost of that compression in the state budget, whereas the in the previous term, they couldn't do that. Um, but either way, it was probably bad policy. We've talked about that previously. Uh, you know, putting an appraisal cap in on residential properties is just it's not a great idea. It doesn't work. Uh, and it manipulates the market uh, pretty bad. So the original plan was we're going to compress and we're going to put an appraisal cap in place. On the Senate side, um, the Senate wanted to do a couple of things. Uh, the Senate one did not want appraisal caps, uh, 100%, um, the Lieutenant Governor, Dan Patrick, uh, the chair of the finance committee, uh, Senator Betancourt, uh, who we've talked about in the past is, you know, a 
tax nerd and makes money off of property taxation, um, you you know you both of them believe that uh, an appraisal cap was was market manipulation. Uh, and hey, we actually agree with them. It kind of is market manipulation. So um, on the Senate side, they were against the appraisal cap. They wanted to compress tax rates. So they wanted to do a little bit of what the House was going to do. So they wanted to continue that compression. They just didn't want to do it as drastically. And they wanted to reward two groups. They wanted to reward homeownership through a homestead exemption, um, which you only get you know one property with a homestead exemption. And unless you're the attorney general in the state of Texas, then you can have two. <laughs> Joke of the day. Um, and they also- Allegedly, allegedly. Uh, well, he signed the form, man. I mean- I <laughs> I mean, the the form says on there you can only have one homestead in the state of Texas, and it's a it, you know I think it says it's a felony in state if you have multiple homesteads. Anyways, so they wanted a homestead exemption for homeownership. So basically, they wanted to give a larger benefit to homeowners than they did to businesses and um, and rental owner own or renter occupied buildings, right? Uh, and then two, they wanted to increase uh, that homestead exemption even more for people who were over the age of sixty five, right? Um, a clear, you know, that portion is kind of a clear play on voters. Like I'm just, I'm just trying to go and grab voters, right? Um, and so, you know, and it's funny. I've had a lot of conversations with people who are over the age of 65 about that segment, and I explained to them, and you know, a lot of people who are over the age of 65 own usually more than one property if if they have a significant amount of money, um, and you know, so they they get that benefit, but they lose that benefit on the other side. So really at the end of the day, it kind of washes for them if they own multiple properties. But for somebody who owns one property who's retired on a fixed income, it would be extremely beneficial for them to to have that increased amount. So that was the two plans that came out. They could never agree. There was no compromise. Um, and they, they just really wouldn't even talk about it. So we didn't get it done in the legislative session. We come to special session one. The House goes into session passes the bill without the appraisal cap. So they basically pass an all compression bill and that's it. Uh, and then adjourns and leaves. <laughs> so basically tells the Senate to take it or leave it. At the same time, the governor speaks up basically for the first time and says, the house plan is the only thing that actually addresses my call. The Senate's plan does not meet my call for special sessions. Therefore it's uh, it can't, it can't be passed. Right. Uh, because in a special session, the governor controls exactly the legislation that uh, that comes through the process. It's probably one of the strongest powers you have in the state of Texas as a governor. Otherwise, you're fairly weak politically. Um, and so they came, they left, the Senate was left holding the bag, and the Senate would never compromise on that. And so they basically knew that they were going to kick this can down the road to a special legislative session. So they've gone into a second legislative session now, uh, or a special session, and we... Um, what they're looking at right now is, is somewhat of a compromise. Um, and maybe they can get something done. We have yet to see the needle really move on, on where it's going to be because the house is very insistent on uh direct compression reform that, that impacts all property owners, which is what was done previously. It impacted businesses, impacted renters it impacted, or at least renter occupied buildings. And it, it, uh, impacted homestead exemptions. There is some talk that the House is willing to compromise a bit on some homestead exemption, but not near to the value that the Senate is looking for. So that's kind of where we're at. Um, and it's a it's a very interesting debate that is occurring in the state of Texas. So I know you have a couple of comments. I'm going to kind of turn it to you. So one question that I had for you is, 
on the over 65 expansion. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're talking about expanding the school homestead from 40,000 to either 70,000 or a hundred thousand, right? A hundred thousand kind of got thrown out there. And now that's like, that's kind of where a lot of people's baseline is uh, mm-hmm. just because it got thrown out there. What is the extra homes exemption um, for the over 65 that they're talking about? An additional 30, like how, how much more? So it would go from On top would of the from- either 70 or hundred. No, it would go from 70 to 100. So, uh, okay, so what that's talking, just for the over They're talking about going from 40 now on, on the homestead exemption to 70, mm-hmm. right? For everyone. And then for everyone. And then they okay. would go from 70 to 100 if you were over the age of 65. That's the set okay. plan. So, the actual real world impact of that for most over 65 homeowners is a $300 a year savings perpetually because their taxes are already frozen. Yeah, because the MO, they're already frozen. The MO rates of school districts now are down to like a dollar five, dollar ten, yeah. right around there. You know, MO plus INS, right? It's school taxes are about a about a buck, depending if you're in a fast growth district, it's actually compressed more, right? Um, but yeah, you you're spot on. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it is what I, I like. I, I so in conversations that I've had with people about Prop 13 specifically, they're Argument is always, well, what about my my grandparents or my my aunt and uncle who are on a fixed income? You know, uh, it's it's so beneficial for them. Like, but we have kind of solved that problem here in Texas with the senior freezes. Mm-hmm. It's just a weird thing to add to it because it's as our population ages and the more and more people fall into that category, um, the like the percentage of actual homeowners because a lot of younger people are having trouble getting into the market anyway. Like the percentage of homestead exemptions that have that freeze is going to continue to grow. So it's interesting to. Yeah, I, I think the logic. Extra. I think you're making a really good point here about the logic and the math, right? Both chambers have good points in what they're trying to make from a from a mathematical logic standpoint, and then both chambers also have like really goofy points, right? So when you talk about the appraisal cap. Uh, there's a ton wrong with the logic in that math, right? So from a house standpoint, you talk about that appraisal cap, it doesn't make a lot of sense. When you're talking about uh, giving a benefit to seniors where we have uh, basically the ability to freeze their taxes when they turn 65 anyways, they're going to get significant compression of their of their tax dollars. Yes, based because on, the rate is, is the rate going is down going, too. That's correct. And the way our tax freeze works is, you know, it's based on that appraisal. It freezes the appraisal on the property, right? Um, and so if the if the rate drops, they get the benefit of the rate drop. So um, they're both not being logical in their conversations. On well, it's politics, it is. It is politics, and it, it muddies the water even more on a on a topic that is already really really hard to see through, right? Yeah. One of the biggest problems with this whole debate is that. The act, the average person has no idea what tax compression means mm-hmm. and how it kind of affects them. And so you're already starting at a disadvantage if that's your position, is that we should just keep compressing rates. Um, it, it does make some logical sense to say, if this is going to be our strategy, then we should find ways to mitigate the potential downsides by, by keeping that appraisal growth um capped at an even lower rate um the the cap that the house was talking about would be for all properties right not just for homesteads 
Uh, the cap would be uh, for all properties. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so we're gonna we would be going from ten percent cap only on homestead properties to five percent across the board, which gets us very close to Prop thirteen. Yeah, and it, and it, and that was a that was originally a kind of the, how it was thrown out, and then you know obviously during negotiation and compromise, they're like, well, we'll just do it on residential homesteads. It kind of went back to residential homesteads, but it, it doesn't matter either way. Um, the the impact that it would have on the free market of of residential real estate would be substantial. I mean, just look at the impact of interest rates on on residential, right? I mean, yeah. we hit seven point two five yesterday. Uh, today's Friday, July seventh, uh, but we yesterday we hit seven point two five. I'm not sure I've ever seen thirty uh, year interest rates as a homeowner. You know, look, I'm you know almost forty. I'm thirty nine years old, but as a homeowner, I don't think I've ever seen a conventional thirty that high at this point. I think the highest I ever had was like six point two five was the highest rate I'd ever had. And I know some people who had like six, seven, five. So we're, we're in territory now where people, you know, just the, the, the market manipulation that is occurring within the residential market, we're going to see some, I, I think we're going to see some deflationary trends or at least some slowing trends is the better way to say it in residential. We're already seeing that. Yeah. Rates. We're seeing it slow for sure. Yeah. We're seeing it slow, but um, you know, I, I think it's also, you talk about compression and people understanding compression. I think we need to put that in terms that people understand, Right. Um, I was at a car wash about a month ago and, you know, of course about a month ago from now, appraisals are hitting mailboxes, right? End of May, mid-May appraisals hit really hard in mailboxes and people start to freak out about their appraisals. And look, my appraisal went up like 20%. Uh, we appraise every other year in Parker County, which is stupid. Uh, just no, no better word to use there. Um, and so what happens is, is because we appraise every other year, people see these just huge increases in values that occur. And and we, we got hit with that, uh, this year. Well, I'm sitting in this car wash and the guy's like, I can't afford to pay 20% more in my taxes. And I'm like, okay, Hey, hold on. You're, you're not ever going to pay 20% more in your taxes with what has been done in property tax reform to this point. It's you're, you're not going to get there from a stand. And I did the math for him, like right there, like on a, on a napkin in the middle of a lobby while my car was getting washed. And I, I basically said, okay, Hey, your value went up 20%. Okay, great. By law, your city, without going to the voters, which no city in Parker County has done or will do, right, can only go up 3%. Okay. So your city, sorry, you're right, three and a half. Your city can go up three and a half. Your school districts, by law, can only go up two and a half. And then they have the compression of the old system that was there, right? So when you take that the school is a dollar 10 of his tax rate and uh, you know, the city and the county and everybody else that are at that three and a half percent cap are another 60 cents or so, right? So you're at a dollar 70 total. He's really only going to go up about 2.9% uh, in, in his, his whole tax bill, right? So when I said that to him, he was like, oh, well, that's, that's not bad. I mean, inflation is like eight or 9%, right? Or 7%, wherever we are right now. Like but anyways, 4%. Yeah. Yeah. But either way, like, you know, it's, we don't but put it in this, terms where people can understand like the actual cost of it. True. But you're talking aggregate level and the problem with this whole system and the reason why it's still oh, great topic. So challenging is that that's not necessarily true for him. That right? is that is correct because it's, of the algebra of the of the system we have. Yeah. Right? It's three and a half percent on all properties. And if sixty-five percent of your tax value in your city is residential. Um, and it's growing at 10% a year and the rest of it is commercial, industrial, whatever, and it's not growing anywhere near that, then um, 
the impact is going to be felt more on those homeowners. And that's really the reason that we keep having to talk about this over and over because you're going to get, you're going to pay more than the 3.5% or the two and a half percent or whatever, right? It's just overall revenues can't grow by more than that. Because when you look at residential appraisals in Parker County, they went up 20%, right? And I don't know what the commercial appraisals went up. We have that data. We can probably pull it real quick and look at it, but um, commercial appraisals, you know, didn't go up 20%, right? So if they went up less and we went up more on the residential side, I'm, I'm talking residential versus commercial, right? Then the algebra is going to change and I'm going to have to pay more of the burden on the residential side than the commercial side is going to pay. So there's right. that unevenness that occurs, which does, and you are correct. I actually said that to him and then lost him. So um, it was a, it was a really, I, I, and, and I made the comment, you know, Hey, you, you know, you pay 2.9% more, but you're going to pay a couple of ticks more because of the appraisal methods. And, you know, when I tried to explain that, it was even more complicated. Um, what I have, what I think is really interesting in that though, and I, I want to dig into this right now, what would it look like if we had a taxation system that separated those silos? Would it allow you to tax um, residential at one rate, commercial at a different rate? Yes. Maybe even, maybe even other uses as well? Correct. Certainly and, you'd and, have, I guess, commercial, residential, personal. In parts of Texas, minerals, a bigger deal. Right. Um, but I mean, yeah, theoretically, you could break it down by land use code too. Correct. And so don't, don't you think that would be a better method of taxation, a fairer method of taxation? It would be easier for you to manage the relative level of tax growth or like tax mm -hmm. burden. Um, just to take a simple example, if you have like a hundred homes on a Walmart and that's your whole tax base, right? That Walmart's not growing in value. Correct. Uh, for a variety of reasons, your homes are growing at 10%. The burden is obviously going to be shifting over, even if you didn't have a cap. Well, that Walmart's right? not growing. Hold on, we got to explain that Walmart's not growing because their appraisal method is different. It's not a market appraisal. It's not. It's yes. There's many different options that the appraisal district has to value that Walmart, and that Walmart has significant resources to fight those appraisals, right? And it's it's just not quite as clear. I mean. There are legitimate reasons to say that that a Walmart's valuation is more complex than a, a residential homestead, right? There's a there's a much broader market for that type of property than for a 200,000 square foot concrete block on, you know, that sits behind 15 acres of parking. There is a fair argument that the appraisal mes methods probably should be different. The question is what method are they using? Are they using like the value of the building as uh, as it stands now, as it would stand like the dark store theory if Walmart left? Uh, are they looking at the actual income producing aspect of that property? No, because if they were, that they they would be increasing. We have the sales tax data. We know that their their uh, their sales are increasing on an annual basis. Um, but because they have that flexibility. Uh, as an appraisal district, they can opt for a different method when Walmart comes calling to protest. Um, but the end result is that your Walmarts, your Lowe's, whatever, those big box stores, they're not increasing in value on an annual basis anywhere near the rate that a residential homestead is. So even in a world where you didn't have caps or compression or anything else, the relative burden 
is shifting to residential homeowners because their valuations are growing faster. Okay. Mm -hmm. If you kept the tax rate the same, if you didn't have any caps, that's what's going to happen. When you add that cap, that three and a half percent cap on top of it, it has an additional uh, burden, burden shifting shift. effect, right? Yeah, I don't really remember exactly how we got here or what, what we had talked about. Um, but at the end of the day, that homeowner is not going to be paying only a 3.5% increase. They're going to be paying probably an 8% increase in taxes on their on that city portion or, or something like that. But it's not going to be the full 10 or 20%. So how we got here was the question of, is putting those into their own silos okay, by yes. use codes a better method of taxation or a fairer method? Of taxation. Yes. So in that circumstance, maybe the residential tax rate drops by six or seven percent, and the commercial tax rate basically stays flat. Right. This adds quite a bit of complexity to your tax code. Uh or to yeah, to your to your tax rates. But, but does it? I mean, really, 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 does it? I guess it would depend on how granular you want it to get. And um if you just kept it at a high level, anything that's residential, which could include single family detached houses, it, I guess could include apartments, condos, things like that. And then anything that is income producing or commercial, mm -hmm. maybe you could have an argument that things like apartments are income producing. Um, but if you just separate it where like people live here and people do business here, and that's kind of your demarcation, then it wouldn't be too, it just an, uh, one extra tax rate. If you wanted I mean, to get into like super detailed levels of this type of business or land use is taxed at this rate, this type of land use is taxed. You're going to have fights about, am I properly coded? Am I, you know, like the protests are going to be even more outrageous. I mean, maybe, right. But when you, when you talk about difficulty level, you know, our property tax system right now is not super complicated, right? It's, and, and because of that lack of complication, complicated. Well, I mean, we appraise it. Right, we have a cap. There's a rate, right? You figure out the millage. The math is easy once you get there, but everything before correct. that is hard. Uh, agreed. Um, but like sales tax is very, very complicated. There's a lot of different statute on sales tax, right? There's a lot right. of different things in sales tax that are just very complex, and how taxation occurs, and when it occurs, and where it is placed, and Property tax is not near that complicated, and you you could still silo property tax and still be less complicated than we are with sales tax, right? Yeah, no, I, I agree. And in fact, if you were to do that, which we've talked about before, mm -hmm. if you were to do that, you could probably get rid of a lot of the complexity that happens before you get to the actual calculation of what you owe. Mm -hmm. The biggest pushback that you provided whenever we first talked about this was that the business side, like there'd be a fear maybe that cities would kind of stick it to businesses because they don't vote. This is this was prior to the three percent, right? That or the three and a half percent cap. No, no. Well, yeah, I think we talked about this maybe two years ago. Okay. Um or maybe it would have been like right after SB2 was passed. Um but when when I brought up the idea of possibly separating tax rates by use, that was your that was your first pushback is that um there would be concern that cities could stick it to the commercial ta uh, taxpayers because they don't vote. Um, maybe they're not even like local businesses, right? They're just national chains. And so mm. like they don't have a maybe a presence in the city. So it, it would maybe be easier for them to just offload things to that commercial tax. 
Um, but I, I do think that if you could come up with a system like that, you could probably get rid of a lot of the complexity and a lot of the the just weird edge cases that keep coming up that keep pushing the legislature to do some other kind of reform and kind of add on a new band aid to what we've already done. Yeah, I, I just think it's a it's an interesting concept uh, because ultimately the problem is the rising cost of property taxes in Texas, right? Like that's the problem. And we keep creating solutions that actually exacerbate the problem. You know, it would be a really good solution. What's that? If we built more housing. (laughs) That's a joke, everybody. That's a joke, right? No, I mean, it it is. Yeah. It's kind of a cheeky thing to say, but it's true. If we built enough housing to keep up with the thousand people that move here a day, then we would not have the soaring home values. The problem with that is that we have built an entire economic model that is based on people owning homes as their primary instrument of saving and wealth creation, right? So it benefits the individual to not allow homes to be built so that their home values increase. It's not the only reason that home values increase, but it is a big reason why home values increase. Um, Right. So there's an incentive for the individual homeowner to oppose new housing. And there is a big detrimental impact on the community at large when you don't allow enough housing to be built. Yep. So there's this tension here. And this is the, this is one of the biggest problems with prop 13 too. Like, um, cause as we've been talking to Michael about like how it actually works at a granular level in California, one thing that kind of stood out to us is that it's to the city's benefit to have homes sell and to have the actual people that live in your city turn over frequently, because the second that house sells, you get to recapture all of the valuation growth, right? So if you have a house yeah. that maybe sold in 20, you know, 2008, right? Like right right as the market was taking a downturn. So that house sold for $500,000. Today, it's worth $2 million. Mm -hmm. It's only being taxed at maybe 600,000. So you're missing like $1.4 million worth of tax value. The second that sells, you recapture all of it. So it's to their financial benefit for everyone to just move out of their city because they can recapture all that lost value. But then you, you don't have a cohesive community, right? So there's like a real incentive mismatch from an economic standpoint and from just a community cohesion standpoint. We don't have that exact model here, but we have a similar issue um, where the individual incentives of the homeowner are not aligned with what would be best for the community as a whole, which is to have enough housing for everyone, right? And you can kind of maybe push that to the other city. Like we don't have to have enough housing or any build any more housing in my city because you know, we'll just kind of push that to, across the city limit line and let let our neighbors deal with it. Um, but we're going to keep our city the same. But if everyone has that same mindset, then we're not going to build enough housing generally. So then property values continue to grow up. Then we don't want to pay those tax bills. And so we got to figure out something else to do about it. Yeah, I, I think I, it's... I would prefer a situation where we can align those incentives together so that we're like moving in the same direction, right? We're solving the problems in the right way versus trying to solve them sort of after the fact. I, I think that's a fair statement. I, I, I think I think if we could align those 
kind of policies, then we could do a better job of fixing both issues. It, it's a little hard to do that because not everybody believes that that's the the path we want to go. You know, in Texas, for example, there's a pretty large contingent in even the Republican Party uh, or in the Republican Party here that they don't want to grow, right? They don't want the thousand people a day to come to Texas. And that contingent has been growing for years um, in the state, continues to get larger and larger. Um, in Florida, that contingent has grown so much that Florida has basically removed all types of incentives uh, for businesses to move into their state. Um, really going to be a good case study over the next couple of years to see what happens in Florida. So, because if it doesn't change anything in Florida, I think you'll see a lot more conservative legislatures get rid of incentives, right? Um, so, but I think you're right. I think the policy is developing, it's developing incentives maybe in the wrong spot, especially when you're looking at Prop 13. It's it's creating disincentive to uh, to invest in your property from a square footage standpoint. It creates a disadvantage uh, for moving. It creates a you know it just it, it creates a disadvantage for the market to build additional housing. Um, you know, there's there's it it it's a very interesting. Uh, look at that, but it saves taxpayers a substantial amount of money on property tax. Now, that being said, that's not really where the state collects most of their taxes, though, right? Not the state. Most of property tax in state goes to the schools in, t- in California. So, you know, the state itself is making most of its money on income tax, which oh, we don't I, have. I, in I, Texas. Thought I thought you were talking about Texas. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Which we don't have in Texas. Texas has the same thing, property tax for the school system, uh, but really it's a statewide tax. When you look at how the funding formula for schools work, you have other on the M&O side of the tax rate for a school district, it has little impact on how much money the school district itself gets, right? They're going to get a per pupil calculation based on some state formula. All that money kind of goes up to the state and then comes back down to the locals. The INS rate stays local. Yeah. The difference is that like magic pennies, yep. largely. Um but I tried to read through the school funding thing a year or so ago, and I, I half understand it. And if you half understand it, I mean, there's... I'm sure there's someone out there who understands exactly how it works. And they get paid a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah. But Me, I mean, on the other hand, I do not get paid to understand how that school funding works. So Yeah, that's, that's, that's one area of the taxation business we're not in. Um, but I mean, ultimately, you know, property tax reform in Texas is going to take an interesting turn, and we don't really know what that looks like. Um but my my comment is yes, we're going to see a reduction in our property tax bills. They're going to pass something before September, um, so we're going to see a reduction in our property tax bills this year, um, or at least a compression. But is that long term the solution? We're still going to have, and is the state going to have the surpluses to continue to try to put band aids on this? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the surplus that we had this year is from uh, was from COVID money, is from uh, the inflationary impact on sales tax because we didn't have a slowdown in consumer spending mm-hmm. over the past couple of years. Um, it's probably pretty risky to gamble that that's going to stay uh, the case over the next couple of years. And there's a substantial economic concern with the restarting of um, student loan payments, right? Because that's putting hundreds and hundreds of dollars in people's pockets, which they're probably spending on retail goods, right? There's a concern that we're going to see a slowdown in retail spending as well, which is going to have a direct impact on sales tax dollars. 
we'll see whether that actually occurs or not. If you benefited from the student loan freeze and you weren't putting that money away somewhere, I pray for you. Well, Dave Ramsey, well, Dave Ramsey, <laughs> not everybody, not everybody's going to do that. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's ultimately, I think we're going to find out real fast. Right. But there are major retailers out there that are basically saying, Hey, we, we believe retail sales are going to slow uh, because of this. And, and that's where it's going to go. Now that doesn't change the fact that, you know, it's, it's a loan somebody took out, they have to pay it back. Like, I'm, I'm not trying to make an argument of whether this is right or wrong or indifferent or anything like that. Like, I, I'm just, I'm saying that it, it's going to have an impact on, on what sales tax volumes are for local communities. So we're, you know, those policy decisions, just like these property tax policy decisions, these policy decisions have an impact on, um, on what the revenue source uh, for communities is going to be. So it's going to be interesting as, over the next year. It's going to be fun to watch what happens with property tax reform and what happens on sales tax side. Uh, but I think we're in for a little bit of a slowdown, which, you know, I thought we'd be in for six months ago and we, we haven't seen it yet, but I, I think we're about to, we're about to feel it. This could be that, you know, I don't think it's going to be a 2008 holiday, but it kind of feels like we're about to go into October of 2008 here and we're going to start to see, see some slowdowns. I don't know. I've adjusted my priors at this point because we haven't gotten there yet. So does that mean it's going to be my, stiffer? My confidence, when my we do confidence get there? in my assessment that we would hit some kind of recession is lower than it was a year and a half ago. Oh, when wow. We had, okay. When we had two straight quarters of actual grow, uh, decline and we had like a technical recession, but job numbers were still okay and things like that. So they didn't call it a recession. Um, I felt pretty confident that we would be getting to that point where we would have like an officially called recession within a year, 18 months. And we're like 18 months out of that now. And so my, my, like if I had to put a number on it, it would be a lot lower now than it was then. Okay. We're at such a funny place as a, as a country, right? Like this week they released layoff numbers and uh, job growth, private payroll job growth, right? And layoffs slowed and private payroll went up. You know what the market did? Went down. Went down. Yeah. And the market went down because with strong job numbers, they believe the Fed is going to raise rates again, right? Which the market believes as we continue to raise rates, it means that we're going we're gonna to hit even harder if rates are higher, right? I'm not sure that's the case. I think the Fed believes that it gives them more room to lower rates in the future. Um, but I, I feel like I just, I kind of felt like three months ago we were decelerating as we were coming into the landing and it was going to be a little softer, but we were going to have a little bit of a recession as we landed that plane. And I feel like we're coming in at like full speed here on a flight deck and we don't know if we're going to catch the cable or not. <laughs> I have to pull up there at the last second. Yeah. I mean, um, you you got to go full speed because if you don't catch the cable, you, you got to get, you know, as quick as you can off that deck. And that's going to be. You know, I think I think they'll end up having to drop interest rates faster than they ever were when they were going up, which would be something because it's a pretty quick increase. I don't know, man. It's it, it is a wild time. I think it's I think it's a cautionary tale about the way that we focus on certain economic things. Right? We kept rates at basically zero for like fifteen years, almost, and we had growth, but it caused some instability in areas we didn't expect. Injected right. a lot of cash into the system. Yeah. Tying back to the last part of the conversation, we we built an entire 
like national financial mortgage market, like everything became financialized. And it allowed us to make home ownership one of the most important things for people's financial health. Um, and that had knock-on effects too, which we just discussed, right? It's like there's always unintended consequences for these things that that you can't predict and that can kind of bite you in the butt down the road. So so DR like, Horton. Right, I have, so DR Horton cut the price of their homes about six months ago. DR Horton basically cut the price of their homes by 15% across the board. For new construction? More, for new construction. They are more profitable now than they were last year. They're selling more? They're selling more. The cost of materials has gone down, right? And that's how much margin was built into the housing market during a very hot period of time, right? So there's been a a rebalance and maybe that's just one industry and we're seeing that in multiple industries at the same time like that rebalance is happening in other areas too and you're right maybe we're not going to hit the flight deck as hard as i think we will so uh, i saw an interesting thing this yesterday too you can keep i'm going to pull this up you yep you can so i just thought. i mean i i think there's a possibility that you could be right that we have a softer landing because maybe the market has adjusted to the fact that cash flow and availability of cash is tightened um, but consumer debt is still going up and at some point we're going to have to have the, the consumers have not yet made an adjustment, right? Ford report, reported that they had one of their best sales quarters, you know, in, in their history on F-150 trucks, F-150 electrics and Mach-E's, right? So those are all expensive vehicles. They're still selling those cars at, you know, higher interest rates. Um, and so there's, there's going to be a point at which it, it just seems like it's the faucet is going full blast on consumer spending money. And it's not going to be like a gradual spin of the, of the handle to slow it down. It just feels like everything's going to shut off. Um, at least in my opinion, that's where I, I feel like we're headed. What article you got? Okay. So this is an article on Yahoo. You um, still, you still go to Yahoo? No, I found it. Someone posted on Twitter. Okay. The the article is about it's about a TikTok person, but she went to Bucky's and saw the uh, you know they have like the big placard with all the the incomes and wages that they offer for their various employees, mm-hmm. and like the janitors make eighteen bucks an hour. Um, like if you are a manager of a Bucky's, you can make well over well in the six figures. Oh yeah. Um, and we're seeing a lot of that in like the service industry. Like you can start at Sonic for 15 bucks an hour or Taco Bell. So like um, I know that like landscapers and other, other types of work that are more labor intensive and like being outside, especially here in Texas, like they're having a really hard time keeping employees. But the article here is talking about the fact that like, the janitor at Bucky's is making more than she is, is like a, a case manager at whatever, wherever she works. Um, so there's like an interest, it's almost like a yield curve, curve inversion. It's like a, uh, an inversion or a shift where uh, just service jobs um, are paying more than like white collar jobs in some cases, um, which I think is, has interesting effects probably moving forward if that trend holds. Well, I think a lot of that is, is the change in the service industry that's occurred after COVID, right? Uh, tipping is a 
is a primary example of that. And I worked in a service industry, so I've always been a strong tipper. But I did run across something very interesting uh, earlier this week, playing baseball tournament. And after the tournament, we went to Torchy's uh, Tacos, uh, Taco Chain in Texas, for those who aren't in Texas. Uh, Austin-based. I have to say that out loud for Chad. But when we paid, you know, it's it's very common. It's a quick service restaurant. You go to the counter, you make your order, and then they just have somebody run out their food. You get your own drinks, all that type of stuff, right? Quick service. When we paid, it asked, do you want a tip? And it gave me a 50, it gave me a 15, 20, and 25% tip line. It did not give a no tip line without pushing like a button in the right corner for other. And, you know, obviously you got to push other than, you know, enter in either zero or some other number, right? I thought that was interesting. And the reason I thought that was interesting, not because I don't tip, I actually do kind of tip at quick service. uh, And that could be debated with a lot of people. I know I have some friends that are like, I can't believe you tip at a quick service restaurant. It is what it is. I used to bartend and wait tables and that's how I got through my first couple of years of college. So I just, I, I tip in the service industry. But if they're making 15% on average a, on the total sales taco. volume of a, of a Torchies, right? And that's being tip shared out to the employees by, by state law, they have to, if it's a tip, they can't give it to a, a manager that gets you in a lot of trouble. Um, they're making a lot of money because they're sitting behind, they're working at register working $15 an hour. Right. And, you know, a, a Torchies is, uh, you know, is easily, you know, pulling a two to $3 million a year in sales. Probably it's probably three to four. It'd be my guess. I mean, you're talking about that 15% average. My goodness. They're, they're bringing in another $600,000 a year and money that gets distributed through wages to those employees. And they probably only have like 22 employees at a store. Yeah. You'd probably have to, you'd probably have to make a much lower assumption on the actual amount of tip that they get. There's no other option. There wasn't a no tip option. Push the button and say, no, 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 there's no, no button. There's an other button. So you have to push the other button and then type in the number that you want to tip. So if you don't want to tip, you just have to push zero. It it was, uh, it just is what it is. But my comment is, I would be interested. I, I would really be interested to know, like maybe a publicly traded company would do that. But I would be really interested to know, like how much money they're bringing in through the tip line. Because if that increases your hourly wage to twenty five or thirty bucks an hour, wow, pretty you're making for- pretty good. You're making pretty good money in a highly unskilled job. So just you know, my my two cents. If I was you know nineteen again or twenty one again in bartending, it, it's just a yeah. yeah. I remember uh, I made like seven bucks, seven twenty five, whatever the minimum wage was. Plus I'd get like some quarters for each sandwich. Yeah, we made yeah. two thirteen when I worked at Papados. We made two thirteen an hour plus tips. Right, worked all on tips. I would work a Friday night, a Saturday night, and a Sunday swing, and I would usually go back to College Station with you know three hundred and fifty to four hundred bucks in my pocket uh, from tips, right? So made pretty good money, but I worked a lot of hours to to do that. But it you know it was, it's it, hard work. It, it was hard work. It made it livable though in college. So I don't know. Just it, it'd be interesting. We got on a total tangent there. Yeah. <laughs> so. But anyways, I, I felt like it was important to come in and have a conversation on property tax and kind of give the details on 
what's going on in the legislative session. I, I'm not sure we're really going to find a solution anytime soon. They are going to fight about this. I think next week they're kind of really going to get at it uh, and we'll you know, get some direction of what they're going to want to do. But the governor's kind of come out. You know, We didn't talk a lot about the governor. The governor has basically come out and endorsed the House's version, right? Um, he believes the compression should be how we've done it historically. It already works in his mind, and, and we should continue to just work that same compression and just accelerate it with more money. So that's it for well, me, man. You got anything else? That's it for you. No, it's been um, – got a pretty good length here, so we can probably wrap it up. Well, I hope everybody's enjoying their summer and uh, you are able to listen to this one. I know for sure we're not going to be able to make another one for like three weeks because we're going to be on the road, uh, both of us. But hopefully we'll come back uh, after this next uh, special session. We'll have something to talk about and then we'll have some updates as we get into the uh, the throes of getting budgets approved and looking at budgets uh, and where things are going to go from there. So we can come back and give you a little update on some sales tax information and some other things we're seeing statewide. Uh, but other than that, Chad, I think that's it. All right. Thanks, Pat. All right. Thanks. You kind of sounded like Pee Wee Herb in there for a minute. Thanks, Mason. <laughs>